Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm John Iderola, normal host of The Damage Report, stepping in today for what I think is going to be an awesome conversation with a candidate who joins us not over the internet, this time <laughs> in studio, Morgan Harper, congressional okay. candidate for Ohio's third district. We've spoken before, it's great to have you here. Great to be here, thanks for having me. Uh, very excited to find out um, how the campaign is going. And uh, we were talking before the inter interview started and uh, it's getting down to the line actually. Yeah, we are under a 100 day mark. So I think we have 95 days left in the campaign. It mm -hmm. is crunch time. So we're just trying to get all the resources together, continue to get the word out throughout the third district, but feeling great about how things are going. And you, a lot of these races that I've been profiling are big fields. Sometimes you have an incumbent, but generally you have a lot of challengers. Mm -hmm. Yours is a more focused sort of race. Yeah, so right now it's just me and the incumbent in the race. We actually submitted our signatures for the petition to get on the ballot this week. And we're waiting to hear back about that, but it looks like it'll probably be just the two of us. Okay, and um, what about involvement from the party in terms of behind the scenes? Do they appear to have a favorite? Are we expecting that there's gonna be some sort of endorsement? I think when your husband's on the executive committee of the party, then there probably is a favorite, which is the case for my incumbent. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually released a petition. We, the campaign, released a petition asking that the party not endorse in this race. That we have two credible candidates. We know that to be true based on fundraising, which tends to be the mm -hmm. marker of viability for a campaign. We outraised my opponent by a hundred thousand dollars in the last really? quarter with no PAC money. Yeah, and so let mm -hmm. the voters decide. Let's use the resources of the party to educate voters about their choices, host debates instead of picking early favorites and manipulating people through mailers and TV ads that only feature one endorsed candidate. Candidate. These are from the party. Oh yes, yeah. Oh, that seems inappropriate. Yeah, that's how it goes. Okay. And, and it's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's it really puts you know challengers like me at a disadvantage who already you know have more limited resources, but mm -hmm. also are just trying to really educate the electorate about you know some policy ideas, things that will I don't know enable people to get healthcare, housing, mm -hmm. doing something about the climate crisis, and to you know obfuscate information and not spend that just letting people know about their choices yeah. doesn't make sense to me as a goal for the party. So you uh, you implied no pack money. So let's let's drill down um, your philosophy, where you're getting your money from. Um, who are some of the big supporters financially of your opponent? Of my opponent. So she takes 80% corporate PAC money, not a lot of 3% small dollar donors. Wow. And yeah, and like I said, we didn't take any, any corporate PAC money. Huge difference, right? And we know what these differences mean. It means that I am able to represent the interests of people, of individuals, that I will be unbought and unbossed in Congress and able to actually fight for what the constituents of the third congressional district need. And so that's what's most important to me. Also that we got you know donations from 90% of the zip codes that make up the third district. Wow really shows that progressive policies can win in the Midwest, but we need candidates that are going to get directly to people to educate them about these types of policies and build an electorate that will support legislation and candidates who are gonna fight for it. 
Okay, so uh, obviously very clear difference between you and the candidate and how you're raising your money. Let, let's talk about your platform. What are some of the biggest policy distinctions between what you're running on, what your opponent's running on? So I'm running on a platform that supports things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All. My opponent, though, she is technically a co-sponsor of Medicare for All when, you know, actually for the first time acknowledged that this race was even happening when interviewed mm -hmm. by the New York Times seems to have forgotten that and suggesting that I'm giving people pipe dreams of what's possible with some of these fantasy legislation. And it's like, well, you co-sponsored Medicare mm -hmm. for all, right? So how and apparently we're very serious about it. Right, right, yeah, don't, don't even really recall yeah. it. So yeah, so that's a big thing for me. I think everyone in this country should have healthcare. I'm also pushing for an ambitious housing agenda, building more housing and then also stabilizing rents because we now have a majority of people who are renting in the area that I'm trying mm -hmm. To represent, and we have absolutely no control over housing prices. In addition to um, pushing for things like universal childcare and systemic reparations, you know, mm -hmm. one of the greatest injustices that have been committed in this country is the prevention of wealth building for Black people living here. And you know, we as a progressive movement also need to be talking about that. And uh, okay, well, in that area, what are some of the things you'd like to see done? Well, you know, I'm calling it systemic reparations because I do think that we can think. Boldly, right? We actually had a conversation this week that we were part of in in Columbus, and you know, there there are ideas that people have. Should there be capital infusions for people who want to start businesses? That you know, there shouldn't um, that we're waiving property taxes for long-term homeowners and formerly redlined communities. Mm -hmm. uh, home ownership is the primary way that people do build wealth in the U.S., as we know. And there's a lot that the federal government has done to prevent that opportunity from being being available to uh, the black community, and that has to be remedied. Do you support something like, I mean, there's a couple of different ideas of how some sort of wealth tax could be put in that would help to lower inequality, particularly if the money was then used in ways that would benefit working class people, middle class people, something like that? Yeah, I think for sure the, the economic, the income inequality and also wealth inequality is having a devastating impact on us as a country. And even if you find yourself on the other side of that with more money, it's not that comfortable to see people in your community that are sleeping in tents, for example, mm -hmm. which is a situation that we have in the third district. And so a lot of my policies are making sure that everyone gets a fair shot. And in order to do that, we have to at a minimum have people's basic needs met through healthcare, jobs that pay enough to live, just one job mm -hmm. and also doing something something about the environment. So some of the policies that you were talking about earlier, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, we know from polling these are very popular and not just mm -hmm. amongst Democrats. Um, particularly for Medicare for all though, it seemed like in the Democratic primary and in some of the debates that were going on, there was this constant, the moderators were constantly going back to how much it's going to cost. And some yeah. of the candidates who on the stage have something like Medicare for mm -hmm. all. They say that they support something like Medicare for all. They very much focus on the cost. Mm -hmm. It has felt like that is an attempt to dissuade people from any interest in the idea whatsoever. Right. So as you're communicating around Medicare for all, how are you explaining um, the, the, the costs, the relative benefits, those sorts of things? Yeah, you know, it's funny, it comes up all the time. How are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay mm -hmm. for it? You know when we never ask that question? When, for example, this week we're authorizing increased war spending, defense budget for wars that go on and on and on and, that's, mm -hmm. and that are just traumatizing a generation of young people, but not bringing any benefit to anyone, right? Mm -hmm. When we bail out corporations, when we you know, give corporate tax cuts, there's no conversation about where, how are we gonna pay for it? Where's this money coming from? It's like, no, as soon as you start talking about money for people, for us, for our communities, then it's a referendum on you know responsible spending. We have to completely cut through this narrative. I do that in the third district every day by reminding people that we as a country 
country, decide on our priorities and fund them. And it's time we start focusing on the priority of people and communities instead of just companies and, and war. And so um, I think there were, I think 43 Democrats who voted against the, the National Defense Authorization Act. Do you think you would have been the 44th if you were in office right now? Yes. You would have stood with like Rokana and all that? Yes. Okay, we could use more people like that. Um, so you also mentioned the Green New Deal. Um, it was just, it was pretty big news, kind of superficial, but the, the time gave the Person of the Year Award to uh, Greta Thunberg for her international advocacy. Yeah. Um, do you feel like the time is now? Like if, if we get a, a progressive president, we get the right house, we can get this thing passed in the next couple of years? Yeah, and we we have to we have to do something, right? So the time is now because we don't have a lot of time to waste. And so, you know, I've been backing the Green New Deal since day one of this campaign. We just got endorsed by the Sunrise Movement. Oh, congratulations! Yesterday, yeah. So yeah. you know that's great because I've also pledged to not take any money from the fossil fuel industry. This is a no-brainer. This isn't a political issue. This isn't a partisan issue. This is just a issue of humanity. And are we going to address the fact that this planet will be uninhabitable for the next generation if we don't get to work in reducing carbon emissions? Uh, well, congrats on the, the endorsement. I know they recently, they, they're not ready to do an endorsement in the, the presidential race, but they have been doing scoring of people. They take, you know, not just uh, saying that you support the Green New Deal, but particularly what you're gonna do very seriously. Um, I feel like support for the Green New Deal should be a litmus test for a candidate in mm -hmm. a primary. Do you think that that's fair? That yeah. if you're on the wrong side of that issue, your positions on other issues perhaps are not that important? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly one of the biggest issues of our time. And so I'm looking for every candidate to have a very, very strong idea. Green New Deal is the one that I'm backing. And we've got to have, we've got to have a plan here because mm -hmm. it's, it's our future. And we have 16 year olds who are telling us that they're not, they're not having any faith in our leadership to do something about that. That's a wake up call. Yeah. We've really got to address it. So I know uh, I don't want to get too ahead of your, you're in the primary, you got to get past the primary. But assuming that you, you become the candidate, you're running in the general election, um, there are these concerns going around in DC. Is, uh, is impeachment going to dominate conversation during this election? Is it going to potentially hurt uh, the Democrats? If it were up to you, what this, the, the general campaign that you're gonna be in, the many Democrats running, what would you like to be the focus of this general election? What do you think that the country should be focusing on in the run up to the 2020 election? I think we need to be focusing on the fact that this economy is not working for at least 50% of the people living in this country and we're seeing it in the third district. And a lot of people, even if they can consider themselves to be fairly stable or you know on the other side of that economic equation are more vulnerable than they realize, right? Through, you know, if one medical emergency comes up. And so that's what we spend a lot of time doing in talking, campaigning with people in the third district is Sort of re, reprogramming things because I think we have been brainwashed into thinking that you know this pull yourself up by the bootstraps narrative is mm. reality, and it's not. For most of the people living in this country and in the third district, it is a system built up for their failure, and we have to start getting the government focused on making sure that people are able to meet their basic needs through housing, healthcare, quality education, doing something about the environment, so folks really have a fair shot at building the life that they desire. And I, and I think, thankfully, all those issues that you've just listed there, I think that there's been a lot of great work um, by people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, to get people to start to understand that those things are all connected. Yeah. And that solving one involves solving the others. Yeah, and you have to take a grassroots approach to get there, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, door to door, it's the door knocking, it's talking to people at community events, and that's what our campaign is about. And to have these types of races in 
and candidates all over the country. And I think particularly people from my generation that are willing to put that work in, get corporate money out of politics. And it's a lot of people you know, of all ages really though that are waking up to the fact that this political system has failed us. How do we know? Because more and more of us are falling behind. Uh, where can people find out more about your platform? So they can follow us on social media, MH4OH, and then also MorganHarper.org. Did I mention that it's our last full quarter of fundraising? Uh, you might have. <laughs> it's our last full quarter of case. fundraising. So, you know, really any resources that folks can chip in to support. I know it's the end of the year and the holidays, but it will for sure go to good use. We have a great team, and we just, you know, are trying to execute our field game, and we're going to get there and win this thing on March 17th, 2020. Okay. Uh, Morgan Harper, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Having me. Yeah. Uh, stick around, we got another interview right after this. Hey there, welcome back to the conversation here on TYT. I'm Brooke Thomas, and uh, lucky you, you're getting a little bit of everybody on today's show, right? Yeah. Having a little fun with it, uh, you know. And uh, we are going to have a great guest, a guest, uh, a repeat guest. We have this guest on a lot, and for good reason. So I want to welcome Zeke Stokes, a senior advisor to Glad, and also president of ZS Strategies. Zeke, welcome back. I'm glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Brooke. It's great to be back with you. It's always great to talk to you. And today uh, we're talking about the Department of Labor's, I guess, fairly new policy that would allow federal contractors to target or even fire, if I'm right, at LGBTQ workers due to their religious beliefs without penalty. Can you break down what's going on? Well, this is really a part of an ongoing strategy and plan to roll back the rights of LGBTQ people across our federal government. And it's being helmed right out of the White House by this president. We've seen more than 135 attacks, as we've talked about on on this network before against LGBTQ people in policy and rhetoric since Donald Trump took office. And this Department of Labor ruling really brings, brings, brings home this idea that somehow religious freedom and LGBTQ rights and equality are somehow contradictory to one another. And they absolutely are not. We can reach full equality in this country without infringing on a single person's religious freedom. In fact, there are a lot of LGBTQ people who are themselves religious. And so this is an attempt, as I said, by this administration in every way it can to roll back the progress we've made over the last couple of decades. We've seen it with the transgender military ban. We've seen it with Donald Trump removing us from the 2020 census. We've seen it with you know, the refusal to, to do something as simple as, as, as fly pride flags over U.S. embassies during Pride Month. So this is part and parcel of all of that. And I want to touch on something that you just brought up, actually, kind of this use of how religion is used almost as a weapon against LGBTQ equality, essentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a group of people, you know, they are a minority of Americans. We know that 80% of Americans support LGBTQ equality, full LGBTQ equality, but there is a minority of Americans, and unfortunately, they have a stranglehold on the Republican Party these days who believe that somehow their religion is being infringed upon when I marry my husband or or I even try to go, you know, be served a piece of cake in a restaurant. So we've seen court cases, we've seen state legislation. Legislative battles, um, but they really are, uh, are are not folks who are who are well intended. They're using religion, as you said, as a weapon uh, and really as a license to discriminate, as an excuse uh, to discriminate in the public square uh, in 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 many many ways, and it's harming LGBTQ people in very real ways across this country. 
And I want to talk about the, I want to shift to the 2020 election, the presidential election campaigns, voting. And because I think that there are possibly a lot of non facts out there. And so I was hoping that you could break some things down with me. Like specifically, as of right now, which presidential candidate is or are, which, which of them are polling the highest in the LGBTQ plus community? Well, we've actually seen Elizabeth Warren polling the highest in one of the first uh, in one of the first polls ever to, to poll specifically LGBTQ people. But I'll say um, I don't have any reason to believe that's not true. But I also will share that I I, I don't think LGBTQ people are voting uh, in sync in this primary. I know a lot of LGBTQ people uh, with with Warren. I know a lot of friends who are with Biden or or were with Harris or with Booker or with Buttigieg. Uh, I think what LGBTQ people are really looking for is someone who understands the damage that's been done by this administration uh, and is not just an ally. You know, all of these candidates are allies in one way or another. Uh, some have better records than others of allyship. But what we really want to hear is uh, from these candidates is that. Not only do they have a plan to reverse the damage that's been done by Donald Trump, but they have a plan to move us forward to full equality and acceptance. We can still be fired in more than half the states in this country. We can still be, uh, young people can still be uh, subjected to conversion therapy in more than half the countries. We've seen a rise in hate violence against LGBTQ people, particularly transgender women of color, uh, more than 17% overall rise in hate crimes uh, for LGBTQ people. So, uh, you know, that's one poll. I think it probably, uh, it's probably uh, uh, reflects what is really happening out there. But I do think LGBTQ people are still searching for candidates in a lot of ways. I want to touch on again, like something you just said, because we, we do know that black trans women are at most risk for violence out of any other um, like group of people in our country, overwhelmingly so. And um, do you think candidates are addressing the dangers that black trans women face? And just what your thoughts of how it's being discussed in general? I was particularly pleased by how the candidates spoke about this epidemic of violence against trans women of color at GLAD's debate in Iowa back in September. Elizabeth Warren stepping on stage and instead of her opening remarks to sort of give her elevator speech about why she should be president, she read the names of all the trans women of color who have been murdered so far this year. What we need is a candidate, a president, who will take uh, who take this very seriously and 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 create an initiative at uh, the Department of Justice to ensure that law enforcement across this country understand why this is an epidemic, what they can do to stop it, and how when it happens they should deal with these uh, with these uh, crimes and with the people who uh, who are affected by them. Uh, which candidate do you feel like overall? I guess I imagine that Elizabeth Warren is going to be at the top of this list. But any candidates you feel are addressing the community as a whole, like best and issues that affect the entire community? You know, I think the Democratic candidates have, by and large, done a very good job of doing of addressing LGBTQ issues and 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 voters. You know, we represent. Uh, six, we represented 6% of the entire uh, voting uh, electorate in 2018, uh, and 82% of us vote progressive. We vote for Democrats. We vote for pro-equality candidates. So there's an enormous opportunity for these candidates to speak to our community. And if you look at a state like Michigan, in fact, where Donald Trump won by just 10,000 votes, we've actually identified 76,000 unregistered or unvoting LGBTQ people in that state. That's just one of many states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina. You can go state by state and, and really mathematically demonstrate that our votes could make the difference between winning 
and losing a state and, and therefore the electoral college. So this is very important. We're the second most reliable voting bloc for Democrats right behind people of color. And uh, and so I'm very excited that these candidates are taking us seriously. Uh, I have to give props to Elizabeth Warren. I think Cory Booker's done an amazing job. Obviously, uh, Pete Buttigieg, whether you agree with his policies or not, has done an extraordinary job of representing LGBTQ people under the very hot spotlights of a presidential race uh, in a very uh, respectable and compelling way. So there's a lot there's a lot of good out there in the field. What do you think it means? Because just what you just said, you're right, absolutely. Representation matters and it's important regardless of how you may feel specifically about that candidate. What is it like to see Pete Buttigieg, an out gay man running for president? I have to tell you, you know, I'm not supporting any one candidate specifically, but I have to tell you when I look at what he's been able to do and I think back to, you know, just Five years ago, six years ago, my husband and I couldn't have even been married. We weren't married. We could only get married after the Supreme Court paved the way. Pete Buttigieg couldn't get married. He couldn't serve openly in the military. Um, I think he's the personification of a lot of the progress we've made. I think some of the some of the the, the, the backlash he's getting, though, is because in some ways he also personifies some of the progress we haven't made as a yeah. community. Um, and I think that's that's an important conversation to have. It, absolutely, because as, as kind of what you touched on, like identities intersect. And so there's absolutely like there are a lot of LGBTQ people who are also black. And so then you may be in this space where um, there's positives and then massive negatives. And um, I like that you pointed that out. Are there any candidates on the left that are overwhelmingly unpopular? Well, you know, I have to uh, call out Tulsi Gabbard in that respect. You know, she has a pretty, a pretty devastating uh, record, uh, not only of not being an ally uh, to the LGBTQ community historically, but actually actively working against our community. Um, you know, she, she, she says she's evolved, and I think we have to take uh, her at her word there. And we certainly do. I certainly do. That said, I think there's enough question mark uh, on her record to make LGBTQ people uh, pretty nervous about her. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to be nervous about Tulsi Gabbard, quite frankly. Is it any other candidates? Uh, yeah, you know, I guess I wouldn't single out anyone else. I think, I think the, I think the, 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 the field of candidates has done a really good job. And I think we would be in good shape with, um, with virtually any of them, certainly <laughs> over this president. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Thank you so much, Zeke. I am, it's always great to talk to you. I'm glad we got to break down oh, thank you. so many different aspects of this conversation. Zeke Stokes, yeah. a senior advisor to GLAD and the president of ZS Strategies. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. All right, that's it for the conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for thanks as always for letting me come hang out with you for a little bit.